0: alaska's newsmakers action line kiny and good morning everybody you are listening to action line on kiny i am your host jordan lewis joining me in the studio today i have representative sarah hand how are you doing today
1: good jordan good morning nice to be here on what's you know from the weather we've been having it's a lovely day out
0: you know comparatively (laughs) that is not you are not wrong about that it is pretty nice weather now, obviously, it's been a bit since you've been in here, so I have a couple of things I want to ask you about, and you've got a couple of things that you've brought as well. So, I think the first thing I want to mention is uh, the legislative welcome is going to be coming up next month.
1: Yeah, we are getting ready f- uh, for the start of the second half of the tw- 33rd legislature. We convene on uh, January 16th, and uh, you know, of course, the Juno delegation. I'm in the building year round. That's our only district office. But uh, there's a lot of activity right now. Um, there's always a lot of, uh, you know, deep cleaning of the building and little renovations, painting, patching things. And uh, the maintenance crew has been very busy finishing those things up and, you know, starting to see people appearing. Um, you know, a few legislators have popped in from other districts to check on things. So... uh
0: They're doing a lot it, of prep
1: work. Yeah. The the I always call it the back to school feeling, and of course because we convene in January, uh, someone said, "Well, this is really early. You know, it's more than a month to go." And you go, "Well, if people take a holiday break, you got." Couple early weeks in December, and then it's time to be in Juno. So um, it's starting to feel like it's very close.
0: Oh yes, and I know uh, when I was talking with uh, Senator Keel yesterday, he was talking about how we, he and I were talking about how it's also important the the, the welcome because it also helps further enforce why Juno should still be the capital. Because it's kind of our opportunity to show and have Juno come out and be like, "Hey, look, here's here's who we are. Here's the things we can do. Here's why we make a great capital."
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Juno welcome is. Uh, you know, revered. It's one of the things that gets talked about. Legislators get and offices get uh, get invited to a million different events. And to the brand new staffers, and the brand new legislators, they get told very quickly, this is the one not to miss.
0: Gotcha. And now, kind of still sticking in kind of this things that are upcoming, I also know there's a couple of open houses coming up.
1: Yes, the Juno delegation, we're going to do um, a holiday open house on the 19th of December um, from 1130 to 130, so over the lunchtime hour at our offices. Rep Story and myself are both on the fourth floor of the Capitol and Senator Keel's on the fifth floor. And we've done this um, since we've been in. I think we've done it at least four years, Not, not of course the COVID closed years, but just stop by over the lunch hour and have a cup of coffee or... You know, we'll have some snacks. I'll, I, I always make sure we got smoked salmon there some way, some shape, some See, version. That, that's how you
0: draw them in. You're like, oh, so I, now I have to go.
1: Yeah. And uh, I don't know that our offices are fully coordinated. We usually try and do three different kind of offerings. So in theory, you could stop by each and, you know, get, get a little something different. get a little something different at each one.
0: Gotcha. I also know that the Governor's Open House is coming up.
1: The Governor's Open House is less than a week away. It's on the 12th of December. Um, Opens at 3, goes till 6. And I guess I'll highlight one of the losses to the legislature. Chef Steph, Stephanie Marmon, has been the uh, cook for the Legislative Lounge for, oh, 15-plus years. She has been tempted away back to the governor's house as their head chef. And um, many people are familiar with Chef Steph's candies and her delicious shortbread and variety of cookies that she sells under her Chef Steph label year-round but um, and from public market, etc. But she's been cooking at the governor's mansion, preparing her delicious treats and recipes and ready to... Because she'd been at the mansion under previous administrations back in the day. And we are thrilled for her and the governor's house to have her back. Her loss is going to be deeply felt at the legislature. But um, if you need a couple chef stuff, treats, then go by the governor's house next Tuesday, the 12th, from 3 to 6.
0: Gotcha. Now that I've hit some of the fun things I wanted to hit, because I always want to make sure we hit a couple of fun things. Yeah. Wanna to change the change the direction here. We're gonna hit a couple of serious, more more poignant topics. Now, I know you and know, I discussed this before. You can only talk about what's on public record, but obviously there was an ethics committee meeting recently. So maybe talk to me through through process. Because obviously, like you said, public record stuff, that's the other stuff you can talk about. So talk to me about process and step.
1: Yeah. So um The Legislative Ethics Committee is a committee that is uh, established in statute and actually has fairly extensive statutory guidelines about process and procedures. There are five public members of the committee, and they are appointed by the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice, and then uh, two legislators from each body, so two senators. With two alternates, two House members with two alternates, alternates only serving and voting if uh, the primary is not there. If a, an ethics charge or uh, inquiry is brought to the Ethics Committee, they are brought confidentially. Um, all complaints before the Ethics Committee have to be um, notarized um, and articulated, and then um, depending on who who the member is if it's a if it's against a member of the house then the house members the subcommittee of the ethics committee so still the five public members and then the two house members serve in the evaluation of that and if it was a senate member then the two senate members Um, and uh, we were dealing with two complaints that had been filed in 2022 And the first step in an ethics complaint is for the ethics committee to uh, evaluate if the charges as they articulated were true, would it be a breach of legislative ethics, the rules and government and laws? And if it is so, then to proceed with an investigation. Um, Those two charges Uh, led to an investigation that was stalled out for a number of months, about four and a half months, where there were people, the investigator, you know, that were alleged, well, witnesses to it, the members involved that were charged or that the allegation was about, who were non-responsive to inquiries from uh, an investigator. And and the committee members themselves are not doing the investigation. This is a, a private, and I don't know if that person's actually a licensed private investigator, but they are an investigator that works through a law firm. And um, that caused a long delay in the committee's ability to evaluate the case because— there were six people who were non-responsive to the inquiries to ask, based on the allegation, did this happen, did it not? Um, then the Ethics Committee Administrator, Jerry Anderson, died suddenly, and that brought sort of everything in the office to a screeching halt, um, a new ethics administrator has been hired, we had an interim person, Um, we were able to get a response. The other thing is, of course, legislative session had happened, so uh, the investigator last January, so even though the, the charge stems from May of 22, the investigator was not able to interview six of the primary witnesses till January and February of 23. We were in session, so that forestalled some action being able to take place, then we had a death. and then the investigation had concluded, and the committee was able to evaluate the evidence brought before it. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, along the path kept being brought up is that the two people, uh, representative Eastman and representative Kirker, were the people the allegations were against. I can say their names because both of them waived their confidentiality. But other people involved in the investigation did not waive. And it is not clear that statutorily, uh, the the statute actually explicitly says that if a person brings an ethics charge and they break confidence, the charge is to be dismissed. So the statute is written in a way that the, it, it sort of, the tone is, Uh, or the concern had been that the person bringing people would you don't want people to just randomly trump up charges out of thin air frivolously and so they have a legal obligation to remain confidential in their charges Um, otherwise it's dismissed and it's not clear that they can ever breach confidentiality and have the investigation happened. Now, as it was concluded, and we did issue um, a finding last week, so that is on the public record that um, there was not uh, a, and the the charge had been, did, were public resources used to help a private entity in their own lobbying efforts. Were um, staff, staff, uh, time, computers, phones, storage of materials were those made available to a person who was not a in the, the restriction on the use of public resources for private gain. Um, and the committee concluded there was not enough evidence to show that that threshold had been breached. Um, but it also, in both of the findings, Uh, articulated to both legislators, one former legislator, that their non-responsiveness to the initial investigation led to this case being drawn out for over a year.
0: Gotcha. Now, I do have to go into our break. When we come back, I'll have more questions for you. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. And we are back with more Action Line on KINY. Now, Representative Hannon, I know in the first time we talked with the Ethics Committee, And I wanted to definitely want to make sure we hit that because that was recent. But I did have another big topic I wanted to hit with you. And that was, I know, recently enough in terms of the political scale. uh, The Attorney General had sent out a a letter, an email to schools around the the state, not even just the district. And I want to get your thoughts on that because I had read through some of that. And a lot of that was, I would say, interesting.
1: Well, it's uh, interesting with a big eye in that, much of what the AG's letter on um, transgender students, participation, privacy, um, the discussion, and I will use their verbiage of "quote parental rights," were things contained in legislation that didn't move this year. And um, you know, from a legislative perspective, it appears that the AG, and this is not a lawyer, right? This is this is pop chair that the because the bill didn't move that it appears the ag is taking many of the actions that he wanted in statute that the governor wanted in statute because it was a governor's bill and placing them into regulations the ag saying i've reread these regs on this and you must now do these things um one if that's what the regs had been then why did you need the legislation if you need the legislation and the statute to allow for this, but you can, you, you, there's a question in my mind as to whether you're taking an action that's allowed under law because you were attempting to change the law to do that. But if you can do it within the regs, then we never needed to deal with the legislation. So there's some question about that. I I think there's also a question of um, jurisdiction of the state over Fifty-three independent school districts with elected boards and their authority to govern within the law broadly, and the AG kind of, I think, overstepping that. Now, um, the Juno School District is choosing to say we're not we're not immediately going to comply. We're going to get some legal analysis on our own, and we think that you're kind of stepping into our stuff. That we have policies and legal jurisdiction to govern our school district, and that you're overstepping it. Um, so I think it's both a an issue of um, the three branches and separation and checks and balances and the levels of governing, whether it's local government jurisdiction to set policies for school districts, or is it the state, or is it the feds, and where are we in the mix. And when it comes to school activities, where are they in the mix? Um, there are a lot of things around education, and of course, you know, for me, a high priority for education is increased funding, and that's where we spent a, a lot of political will and energy last year, and there's a lot of momentum, but at the same time, there's a lot of other things being done in the realm of education that policy-wise um, have long tentacles and ripple effects that, um, whether it's... Uh, Students and activities, or whether it's what a s- local community can contribute to funding outside the cap. Um, you know, there was just just a little news blurb yesterday or the day before that quote the governor intends to look at whether um, money outside the cap and limits to that, and federal interpretation of the cap. You know, so things like the here in know, the rally program after school. Daycare happening on the school district property, but not not a program of instruction by the school district, and it's a um, paid for service, right, for you to have your child in rally. And um, there was a letter sent to the Juno School District back in June that said, monies for that in are part of the state cap, within the cap of how much your community can contribute to um, school funding and the Juno School District for decades has funded things like that outside the cap that are not part of the direct instruction of students. And, um, you know, all of our community schools program, evening classes, you know, using the gym. Um, and so... It's going to be an interesting legislative session with a, a lot of lie- lawyer time from local governments and school districts dealing with the executive branch as well as the legislature dealing with the executive branch and funding. And um, we are yet to see, but next week uh, is the deadline for the governor to release his proposed budget for FY24, or ex- f- FY25. We're in FY24. Um so we'll start to see where where those intentions are. But education is going to be at the forefront in the politics for a whole lot of reasons, both at funding and at policies. And I fully
0: I really agree it's going to be at the forefront. I talked with uh, Senator Keel about it a bit yesterday. And what I, to me, and obviously this is a, a pur- purely independent observation, it almost, at least with the the AG's letter, feels like a an exertion of power, almost a power move of being like, I'm in this position. I can be like, hey, do all these things because he's already in an executive area and the session wasn't in session. And so it raises that question to me, at least. And obviously you can comment on that to your own capacity if you
1: are able. And if you're not, that's perfectly understandable as well. Well, whether it's the interim between session or not, the, the where is the line between what the laws say and what the executive branch is to do. And, and, you know, there's this whole area of regulation. So most laws are fairly general, and then the executive branch has to develop regulations with the agency that is to carry out the execution of that law. Um, and for the AG to step in and say, I'm rereading the regulations that we've used in this whole area of school activities, and um, treatment of students, and I'm going to reinterpret it and write a, a letter that says, oh, we've interpreted it differently than we have before. Uh, seems pretty brazen of, because again, at the same time, there was legislation that was saying, we're going to change it. Now that's a you know totally, to me, process-wise, that's the way you do it. If you want to change a policy that's based on a statute, you change the statute, you know whether you want. Uh, you know there are people who say eighteen-year-olds shouldn't vote. Well, then you propose a bill that changes the law that says you got to be twenty-one or forty or whatever you think the threshold is should be. Um, you don't just say start saying, yeah, you know, the age of majority I think is different than what we've interpreted it to be in the past. I yeah. guess that's not a really good example because eighteen is a specified number in statute about the right to vote. Um, But it's strange because, of course, you know, each branch of government thinks their jurisdiction is most significant. But what I will say is the legislative branch is the branch set up to be in touch with the populace the most, right? We stand for election on a regular basis. um, And we are there to be representative of our voters and our, not just our voters, of the citizens in our district and legally to the citizens of the state, the whole jurisdiction. You know, I'm elected from Juneau, but my obligation is to all Alaskans, and um, it is not to sit in my office and decide what I think the law should be by myself and interpret it and change my mind just because I can. Um, You know, to me that's putting, limiting the check that the executive, that the legislative branch should have over the executive branch, and the executive branch exercising a lot. And you know, when there's a dispute between those two, they end up in the third branch of government in the courts. And so um, I don't know that they will all rise to court level discussions, but there's a lot of muddy water happening right now in education policy.
0: Gotcha. On that, we will have to end the show as actually are a little over time. But Representative Hayden, thank you for coming. On. I always appreciate talking to you. And uh, in case I don't see you, I'll see you next year.
1: See you next year <laughs> and happy holidays, Jordan.
0: Happy holidays. You've been listening to Action Line on KINY. Action
1: Line.
0: Weekday mornings. Action Line. If it happens in Southeast, you'll hear it on Action Line. KINY.